Lord's blessing uh, to be upon us. I'm going to turn in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll come and read this portion after a word of prayer. Uh, You have uh, the notes in front of you. There's a lot of notes there. I also put in the notes for next week. And so there's two weeks notes. We're not going to do it all today. And if needs be, uh, we can leave some of today's off and come back to it next week as well. And so I think there's nine pages, thereabouts, maybe ten, maybe a little more. uh, And they're not all for uh, today. Uh, So uh, don't panic. Uh, We'll come back to some of this next week. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, before we read, we'll seek the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy goodness, thy grace, thy mercy. We thank thee that we can come again to thy, day, to thy house in thy day. We pray that thou would be pleased to be with us and bless us as we set this day aside. Uh, to meet with thee, to remember the children of the Sunday school, remember the teachers there also, Father, bless them, meet their needs today, and may they know the blessing of the Lord. Father, save uh, the young in this congregation, we pray, work within their hearts, draw them to the Savior, uh, that they might know him, the one who died upon Calvary to save sinners. Father, bless us today, and as we Move on and consider more regarding what we believe as a church and as a denomination. We pray that thou would teach us, instruct us, and Father, write these things upon our hearts. And may we know the blessing of the Lord here upon us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and here we have the head covering in view. This is one of... Uh, the subjects we'll consider this morning, and some of these matters were really skipping the sur- or skimming the surface, and uh, we're not going into uh, this in any great detail. Uh, but to give a little understanding uh, of our uh, position, if we preached on every position we take, uh, then the baptism and membership course uh, would be a lot, lot longer, and uh, no doubt uh, over. Uh, the course of weeks, months, and years that lie ahead in the will of God, uh, we'll come back to uh, this subject on occasion and look at it in greater detail. Uh, But this morning we'll read 1 Corinthians 11, commencing verse 1. The Word of God says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. (coughs) But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head, For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. 
For man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. And neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long her, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long her, it is a glory to her, for her her is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Amen. We'll end there at verse 19. And the apostle then goes and deals with the Lord's Supper, uh, which uh, no doubt we are uh, familiar with. Last Lord's Day, we considered something of our history as a denomination, looking at that history in regard to North America, uh, but also going back uh, to Northern Ireland, uh, where the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster it was formed in 1951, and then 2005, uh, the churches here in North America formed their own uh, presbytery, their own uh, denomination. And there are ties then between those two presbyteries, and we have a sister denomination in Nepal as well. But as a denomination, uh, we as the Free Presbyterian Church of North America have several distinctives that distinguish us as a denomination. These distinctives have a biblical foundation. And in the little booklet separated unto the gospel, uh, there are many of these distinctives that are laid out and uh, that are presented. That booklet is available on the denomination's website. But first of all, I want to draw your attention uh, to the Lord's Day, moving through just some of these distinctive positions. And I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And the verses 8 to 11. Uh, we come to consider here the fourth commandment. It is a commandment that many have set aside today. Many churches have set aside today. Uh, there are churches in Calgary uh, where I lived for three years. And after the morning service, they didn't have an evening service. After the morning service, uh, they went and they played ball hockey. And... Uh, therefore, they gave themselves not only to the worship of God, but then to recreation and various other activities. Uh, but the position that we take is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, as we will see. And it is the position that the Lord's Day is set apart. It is different. It is a day not for our own pleasure, not for our own activities, uh, but a day uh, given over to God. 
And we see this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. The Word of God says here, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. And why is that? Well, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And therefore the foundation that we have for the Lord's day and the keeping of the Sabbath is seen from the creation week. The Lord worked six days and he rested on the seventh day. And in the scriptures we see that that Sabbath day, that seventh day, moving into the New Testament church, then the first day of the week, we see that this day is set apart to meet with God. In the history of the Christian church, going back to the Reformation, we see that this day was set apart. The Puritans were big on keeping the Lord's day, of setting aside our activities so that we could meet with God. And they referred to it as the market day of the soul. The market day might be the Friday. And of course today we don't have a market day. Real Canadian superstore is open every day for you to go. So every day is market day we could say. But in the old times there was a set market day. The farmer brought his goods to the, to the market to sell. And then the Puritans took that and they said the Lord's day. Sunday, when we go to church, that's the market day for our souls. The rest of the week, we feed ourselves uh, food and sustenance, but on the Lord's day, our souls are fed. And the larger catechism, uh, question 116, asks this question, what is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying, or keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word, Expressly one whole day in seven, which was the seven from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ and the first day of the week ever since, and so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath, and in the New Testament called the Lord's Day. How is the Sabbath then to be sanctified? The Sabbath or Lord's Day is to be sanctified by unholy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful, and making it our delight to spend the whole time, except, except so much of it as to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy, in the public and private exercises of God's worship, and to that end we are to prepare our hearts, and with such foresight, diligence, and moderation to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business, that we may be the more free and fit for the duties of that day. And those duties revolve around the worship of God, coming to the Lord's house, hearing his word preached. And therefore, those things that can get in the way of that are to be set aside. They are to be set aside so that we have the freedom uh, to spend the time with God. And of course, there are works of necessity. There are works of necessity in caring for those who are ill, and there are certain employments that 
we could say are exempt from this because of the nature of that work. When we think of that, often it is said, well, we keep the fourth commandment, but the pastor breaks it every single Sunday because he's working. I'm not working. I'm sitting in the pew worshiping God, uh, but he's sweating in the pulpit. He's, he's working. He's uh, putting in this great effort, especially in the summer and uh, when it's so warm. He, he's working. What about his day of rest? Well, when we think of the Sabbath, and the Lord says it's works of necessity. Coming together to worship is a work of necessity. And therefore, the leading of worship, the praise of God, is a work of necessity. It's a commandment by God that we worship Him. And therefore, the pastor, the preacher, those who are involved in the worship of God are able to perform their duties because it is a work of necessity in the worship of God. And I think that's very important, work of necessity. Work of necessity. I didn't wake up this morning and prepare my sermons for today. I didn't go into the office this morning and print the notes. Uh, they were on the table uh, from yesterday evening. So you could have come in last night, took these notes, and uh, took them home with you to read uh, during uh, the course of last evening and this morning. And why was that? Because that work can be done in other days. It's the work of the preaching of the word. It's works that we cannot do on other days. This morning I looked over my notes. I didn't prepare. I looked over my notes. It was done. And when we think of a doctor, a doctor may have care to be done. He may have to perform emergency surgery. That is a work of necessity. A work of necessity. And we see this in the catechism. And therefore, we are to prepare our hearts spiritually for the Lord's day, but we're also to prepare ourselves in the sense that our work is done so that the work that has to be done on the Lord's day is minimal. It may be that uh, the Sunday dinner is prepared on the Saturday, so it just needs a very quick heating up, not much work. It may be that you engage in preparing the meal so that very little work is done. I find it strange that uh, in my culture, where I come from, that Sunday seems to be the busiest day of the week uh, for the ladies in the home uh, because it's the traditional British Sunday dinner. And you have your potatoes and your carrots and your meat and there's so much preparation to be done. Some is done the night before, of course. Uh, but there's still a lot of preparation to do. But all these things should not distract us from the purpose of the day, which is to meet with God which is to meet with God. And if we are able to get everything done so that our work is minimal on the Lord's day, so we can enjoy the presence of God, so we can come to his house and uh, not be exhausted by the work that we've done, so that we can come together undistracted and praise his name and hear his word. And we have reasons for this. In the larger catechism, question 120, what are the reasons Annex to the fourth commandment, the more to enforce it. And these reasons are taken from the equity of it. God allowing us six days of seven for our own affairs, and reserving but one for himself. In these words, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Secondly, from God's challenging a special propriety in that day, <coughs> the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. From the example of it, 
who in six days made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. And then thirdly, and from that blessing which God put upon that day, not only in sanctifying it to be a day for his service, but in ordaining it to be a means of blessing to us in our sanctifying it. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so how do we keep the fourth commandment ourselves? How do we personally apply it? Well, pray that it will be a personal commitment between your soul and the Lord. Pray that it will be part of your testimony before the ungodly. Pray that it will be a help to public worship for all in our congregation, setting aside our work and activities that we can come together. And pray that it will be ever a blessing and not a burden. Some see the Sabbath day as a burden. We can't do this and we can't do that. And it's so legalistic, not doing anything and being so strict. But the day is to be a blessing, a blessing. Setting aside those things that can distract us from what will be the blessing of that day. And the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And so, may the Sabbath be a day that we enjoy a day of blessing. That's the position of our denomination. And that those who are in membership come, if at all possible, bearing uh, unavoidable reasons but coming together to meet with the Lord that this day would be a blessing as we come and feast upon the word of God but then secondly here uh, we come to head covering head covering is noted within our uh, congregations uh, that uh, the ladies who are members uh, were head covering and why is that it is a position uh, that has created much debate over the last many decades. And uh, there are many churches that have set this practice aside. And so, as we come to this point, as I've said, it is merely scratching the surface. Uh, but notice here that it was practiced in the past. There is a history of head covering and there is clear biblical teaching on this matter. Historically, it was the general practice in almost all churches. It's only since the 60s or thereabouts, during the rise of the feminist movement, etc., that the practice of women wearing head covering in public worship has declined. And the debate centers around its cultural relevance. Is it relevant to us today? And many will look at the church in Corinth and say that, well, only in that culture, if we were to jump in a time machine and go back to Corinth, well, we need to bring our head covering with us. But today, in our society and in our culture, we don't have to do that. And the answer to that is found in 1 Corinthians 11. The apostle bases this requirement for women to wear head covering upon the need for women to submit to their husbands upon creation. And we see there in verse 9, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Adam was made first and the woman was made for man. And head covering in public worship is the symbol of that submission. And therefore, when we read this and uh, we study it, uh, we see that uh, this is something that is based on creation as well. It is for all time, for all peoples, not just one 
cultural group in one specific time in human history. The Bible does not require women to practice head covering at home, when in worship, nor in public places when socializing is for the church. Paul is speaking to the church here, and in verse 2 he refers to ordinances, uh, referring to the practice of the church, and to insist that women should have their heads covered at all times goes beyond the instruction found in this chapter. And of course that is something we see today. And I'm not talking about uh, other faiths and religions, but I'm talking about the Christian church. There are those who believe that ladies should have head covering on all the time. So if I go into uh, Costco and I see you, you should have your head covering on. That's what some believe. That is not what we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want, by all means, to uh, wear your head covering going to Costco, then go ahead. Uh, but it is not on the basis of 1 Corinthians 11 because it is speaking about uh, public worship. And there are those who will wear it uh, constantly uh, based on a misinterpretation of this passage that it is for everything that we do. Everything that we do. So what are we to wear? This is not uh, fully uh, defined. Oh, sorry, we'll move back to compliment. Uh, we skipped... Uh, that out. Uh, but these verses teach us that the woman is the complement to the man. Uh, that teaching is not popular in our present day world. It often leads to a rejection then uh, that the woman is to complement the man and a rejection then of head covering. And of course, when uh, we look at this passage and other passages, we see the submission of the wife to the husband. What does that mean? There are many today who don't like that kind of language. Well, it does not mean that the husband is to be a dictator. It does not mean that if the husband goes home and his wife says, well, I'm making a salad for dinner and it'll be ready in a few minutes, the husband says, no, you're not. You're going to submit to me. I want pizza. I want a burger. And you're going to make that for me. That's dictating. That's not submission. That's not submission. Submission would be to the headship of the man and if, for example, the wife, a believer, the husband, attend worship regularly on Sunday morning, they're getting ready to go, and the wife says to the husband, I'm actually not going today. I'm going to meet my friends for coffee. Then we're going uh, to the movie theater. Then we're going for lunch. And then we're going shopping. So I'm not going to be able to come to worship today. Well, the husband, as the head of the home and the head of the family unit, should be taking that leading role and saying to his wife, no, this is the day of worship. This is the day that we spend in the house of God. And therefore, you're not to go and do this. You're to come to the house of God and worship the Lord with me. Of course, if the wife is a believer as well, uh, that's the important thing here. And uh, the husband is to lead his wife in that and to say, no, this is not happening. As the head of the home, I can't allow this. You're to come to worship with me. And that's not dictating. That's going to the scripture, looking at the God-given role, looking at what our priority is, not only for us, but for our wife and for our family, and then taking that leadership role. That is not dictating. Coming in and demanding what you want to eat is uh, in that particular example or extreme example that we used. And so it's important to understand, not only uh, for women uh, to understand what submission is, but for men to understand what submission 
and what headship is and what it is not. There is to be love within uh, this bond. Uh, there is to be care within this bond. Uh, there is not uh, to be a interaction reminiscent of a dictator and his downtrodden people. There's to be a relationship of love focused on Christ and the husband in leading his wife and in the wife submitting to the husband, what is, it, what is it to be? The husband brings the wife closer to Christ. He's the head of the home. He's the representative. His head is Christ. And he leads his wife and his family closer to Christ. And that's the purpose here. It is not a dictatorial thing, but it is submission, bringing the family closer to the Savior. So what not to wear? Uh, this is not fully defined, or what to wear, this is not fully defined in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, we see something there regarding uh, the Greek words. It means something pressing down on the head, something that is man-made, lying on top of the head. And uh, we need to note then that her does not replace the material covering. To take that position uh, would undermine the Apostles' line of argument in the whole passage leading up to verse 15. And um, would render verse 7 uh, ridiculous. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image of glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. And so if her is the covering, uh, then what about man's her? It is a covering that then needs to be removed. And when we think of this, what are we to wear? Well, head covering is to take away from the glory of the woman. And so when we look at the bottom point there, the practice of head covering must not be a fashion symbol. In the modern times in which we live, there's a great danger of the symbol of head covering merely being a fashion symbol. If you were to go into some churches and uh, to go in as a gang would and take the valuables, well, in some churches you'd want to take the head coverings of the ladies too because of the amount of money uh, that was spent on head covering. It's not a fashion statement. It's not a fashion statement. The wearing of head covering should never be seen as a fashion show or a competition within the local church. That's a carnal attitude. It's something simple. Something that doesn't draw attention to yourself. Draws attention away from you. It should not uh, be like a fashion show. And that is something that we ought to remember. Moving in the notes then, just above that, to giving the glory to God. The spiritual attitude then uh, for uh, the ladies within the church, within membership, is to follow the truth found in verse 15 regarding uh, this covering. They to cover their heads in public worship in order to give glory to God. And the apostle points out that the woman's hair is her glory and it is exceedingly important to her therefore she is to cover that glory and give it to God not for man but to the Lord she takes delight in giving the Lord all the glory in her worship and so that's a summary of our position on head covering there's much more could be said we could go much deeper uh, but it gives a little insight uh, to where we stand as a denomination but then we also have a distinctive regarding ecclesiastical and personal separation. 
In regard to ecclesiastical separation, the separation of the church from churches that are ungodly, churches that are apostate, churches that have moved away from the truth of God, we've mentioned that already. And of course, personal separation. Personal separation from those things that will hinder our testimony and our spiritual walk with God. Our Book of Order adds a adds a section to the Confession of Faith in chapter 25, and it says it is the duty of particular churches to maintain the highest possible standards of purity, of doctrine and practice. Firstly, to be faithful to Christ. They are called to separate themselves unto him from all fellowship or cooperation in worship or service with churches or other organizations or individuals that have degenerated into apostasy by denying or by maintaining fellowship with those who deny any of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And there are those who believe the same as us, but what will they do? They will fellowship with those who do not believe the same as them. And therefore, we are not to maintain fellowship with those who maintain fellowship with those who deny the Christian faith. Or by adopting the moral relativity of the world in defiance of the ethical standards of the scriptures of truth. In other words, the world's morals come above the morals of God. And they are further called to separate from brethren who maintain fellowship with those who deny the faith, to repudiate all false ecumenism, and to refuse to compromise any essential truth of the gospel in an effort to achieve visible church unity with degenerate churches. They must also humbly maintain scriptural standards of holiness among their members and officers, not being conformed to the standards of the world, but purposing to live by the faith of the gospel in obedience to God's holy law. Because the Lord Jesus Christ saves his people from their sins and commands them to adorn the doctrine of God by holy living. The church believes that its members should embrace standards of personal separation from the worldliness of the present age, particularly in light of the scourge that the use of drugs and consumption of alcoholic beverages causes to individuals, families, and society. And the church requires its members to express part of their separation unto God by their total abstinence from all social, recreational, or non-medicinal use of drugs and beverage alcohol. And this then is another uh, position that we take and we separate from churches that have departed from the truth and men from those churches as well. And then personally, we separate ourselves from the world. We live in the world, but we're not part of the world. We're saved and redeemed unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, when we look at society, we see the scourge that there is because of drugs and because of alcohol and drunkenness and all that that brings into individuals, families, and society, we require our members to express part of their separation by God by abstaining from such things. When I think of alcohol, I remember hearing many testimonies over the years back in Northern Ireland of how men were addicted to alcohol how they worked and they brought home their money but first they went to the pub and they drunk most of their money and then their wife and their family had very little for the rest of the week or the rest of the month whatever it might be they came home drunk 
Uh, they came home, they scourged their wife, they scourged their children. It was terrible, horrific. And then the Lord saved them. And what did they do? They took those bottles, they poured them down the sink. They had nothing to do with it. They had a new life, a new nature by Christ. That old nature was gone. And they took those things and they got rid. Those emblems that reminded them of their sin and their wickedness. It was gone. It was gone. And there are within churches and congregations those who once lived that lifestyle and Christ delivered them. Those who were in bondage to alcohol. And alcohol is a drug. Alcohol is something that is addictive. I remember counseling a lady on one occasion. I may have said this before. Uh, but she was persuaded by a Christian friend who went to a church. It was very loose and liberal on these particular issues. A friend who drank alcohol. And she was persuaded to, to drink. Now her father uh, had great problems with alcohol and uh, she uh, tried to argue that well I belong to a church I'm a member of a church where we don't drink and she was persuaded well drinking alcohol is not sinful and therefore it's okay to drink and so she started she was persuaded and she started to drink she couldn't control herself and within a matter of weeks she was in the hospital with issues relating uh, to alcohol. She had some health issues and the alcohol did not sit well with those and she had problems. She started to attend Alcoholics Anonymous and she contacted me as her pastor, told me what had happened and uh, we spent time with her regularly uh, as, I suppose, a way of accountability also and a way of encouragement and helping her and praying with her as uh, she recovered from that particular matter but it was a Christian who persuaded her and she couldn't control it and that happens so often today so often today it is a matter of self-denial abstinence from alcohol a matter of self-denial our church's rule on total abstinence from alcohol does not force anyone's conscience to participate in what is contrary to the will of God to insist that all participate in drinking alcohol would be forcing uh, people to act against conscience. Our church's policy does the opposite. Our church requires a voluntary self-denial to abstain from alcohol for the good of the church and of society. When we look at the church and the witness of the church, we look at society, we see uh, that it is something that is for the good of society. Does the church have a right to call its membership to this standard? And that's an important question. Because there's a strong movement that argues for the Christian's liberty in any matter that is not related to salvation. And many churches that do not have this standard. But in answer to this, there are good arguments for the church's right to rule on a matter that is not imperative to salvation. Or on things that are extra-biblical. Creeds themselves are extra-biblical. They're interpretations of scripture with settled positions on theological doctrines and controversies. And they're acceptable and essential in all Reformed churches. How then can Protestant bodies claim Scripture alone and claim that that can justify having this standard? And well, the Westminster Confession of Faith says, section, uh, chapter 1, verse section 6, The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, 
Man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. However, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word which are always to be observed. And we see that in work in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, and uh, we see it in Acts 16. And these, there were dietary restrictions practiced by the Jews, which Gentile converts to Christianity were also to obey. And these decrees were made as a concession uh, to the conscience of others. And when we uh, think of that, there are things that are not in the Word of God that being guided by the light of nature and Christian prudence, we do. Our order of worship this morning is not set out in Scripture. Paul does not say, this is the form your worship service should take. He does not say, sing and pray and sing again and read and then have the sermon. That is left to our wisdom and to the light of nature and Christian prudence to decide how should we order our worship? It has to have these elements. What order? How should we do this? And of course, when we come to uh, various uh, aspects of uh, the work of God and how it is governed, again, when we come to Scripture, it does not tell us how we should run a session meeting or a deacon's meeting, but it tells us that these things should be done. There's the light of nature and Christian prudence. And the Lord commended those who did refrain from alcohol. Uh, there's examples there, the Nazarites, the Rechabites in Jeremiah 35. Uh, John the Baptist as well, neither touched wine nor strong drink. And so in Scripture there were those that did not drink these things. Timothy was advised uh, to take a little wine for his stomach's sake for medicinal use. And this would indicate that he did not drink wine on a regular basis. Constantly. And so when we think of this principle of self-denial, we've seen that the self-denial principle at work in Acts 15 in the circumcision debate which took place in Jerusalem, and in agreement with that earlier practice, the apostle taught that the strong Christian is to deny himself in consideration of the weaker brother. We'll turn uh, there in the Word of God to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14. The verse number 7. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. And then the verse uh, 13. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And when we consider the subject of alcohol, that is something that can cause a stumbling block for others. And the person I spoke about, alcohol was a stumbling block in her life. Her friend put alcohol in front of her, told her it was fine, and what happened? It's a stumbling block. She wasn't attending church during that time either. It was a stumbling block placed because of it. And when we think of those who have been addicted to alcohol, they're saved, they no longer wish to partake of that alcohol, then we find other Christians drinking and enjoying the drink. There's temptation there. They can be persuaded to partake. 
but that is something they're weak on, the weaker brother. And we're to be mindful of these things. We're to be mindful of these things. There are warning passages in Scripture regarding alcohol. Uh, we find Noah's drunkenness there, Genesis chapter 9, that led to fornication and a curse on the house of Canaan. Uh, we see Lot's drunkenness there, Genesis 19. Uh, we see God's warning to Aaron, uh, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation. Lest ye die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And this came after the slain of his sons had offered strange fire to the Lord. Nabal the fool was drunken when David approached him. First Samuel 25. There's warnings of alcohol in the book of Proverbs. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man. He that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. And we have other verses there as well. In Ephesians 5 verse 18, Paul says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And so the opposite to being drunk with wine is to be filled with the Spirit of God, to know the Spirit of God within us. When we think of this controversy of alcohol, and of course we're just touching the surface here, and much of that controversy surrounds whether the wine spoken of in the Bible was always, always alcoholic or if it was the pure juice of the grape. Much has been written about it. Much has been debated. Still, Christians are divided over the matter. It's my personal opinion that while the Bible does not say, thou shalt not drink alcohol, there are warnings, clear warnings, as we've considered, about the dangers of it. And therefore, separating ourselves from it, taking a step aside from it, not engaging in it, and in this social practice that plagues society, is a good position to take for the people of God. There's much more here in the notes than what we are saying this morning as well. Uh, but let me say this, the warning at the bottom of the page. This is abstaining from the non-medicinal use of alcoholic drugs. And so therefore, partaking is permitted if it is for medicinal purposes. And that does not mean, well, red wine is good for me, red wine is helpful to my cholesterol, and so at lunchtime I'm going to have a glass of red wine. And then at dinner I'm going to have a glass of red wine. And then before I go to bed I'm going to have another glass of red wine. And because that will be good, so scientists say, for my cholesterol levels. Well, that is perhaps stretching it a little bit if you're drinking so much. When we think of non-medicinal purposes, much care and discernment is needed. These substances can be highly addictive. And even the medicinal use of these substances can be highly addictive. And therefore, much care and discernment is needed if they are to be taken for medicinal purposes. And so there is a warning there. The non-medicinal use is not a loophole that we can use to drink, drink, drink as much as we want. Uh, but it is there because sometimes it is needed. But care and discernment should 
be taken. And so we abstain for testimony's sake. We abstain out of love for the brethren. And we see there, Jeremiah 35, the Rechabites God commended those who abstained. In a simple way in which we show that we are separate from the world and separate from that which has ensnared so many and caused so much heartache and trouble in this world. And so we'll end there and we'll seek the Lord in prayer. We'll come next week to consider the next bit about the place of women in the church, marriage and divorce, and then moving in to the notes on week seven. And of course, the next two sections, as is some of this material, is taken from that book, separated onto the gospel. We'll pray and we'll seek the Lord. Father and our God, we thank thee for thy goodness and grace toward us. We pray thou would bless us. We thank thee for this look at these matters. We pray, Father, that thou would bless these things to our hearts. May we be desirous to uphold thy word, to uphold thy testimonies. We pray, O God, that we would be those who know and love thee and desire to hold high thy standard and to live godly unto Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that thou would part us now with thy blessing. We do remember the service to come. We pray that we prepare our hearts for the receiving of thy word. Bless thy truth to us and glorify thy name. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.